yes, it's incredibly tough and yes, it takes everything out of you to do it. But by God, when you see it and when it's finished and when you look around at the relationships that you've forged with people, I mean, there's nothing like it. Hi, my name is Ben McCarthy and welcome to this week's episode of Anything But Square. We are joined by Shannon Ashlin, film and television actor and director. She is here to talk about her new film Sweet Tooth, inspired by the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, and tells the story of the Wicked Witch and her infamous gingerbread house, screening at the St Kilda Film Festival from the 12th to the 20th of June. Genre storytelling conventions, online film festivals, the importance of the film made by women, and gender parity in the film industry. Sit back, grab a cuppa, and enjoy. My name's Shannon Ashlin. I'm a filmmaker. Very, very pleased to be screening my first film at the St Kilda Film Festival online this year, Sweet Tooth. I started my career in the film industry as a performer, so I trained classically as an actor, but I always had this inkling of to want to tell stories, to want to write stories, and also to be able to take an active part in that making process. Is there a particular moment in your acting career that you wanted to be a filmmaker? You know, as an actor, you very much are offering your your art and your craft to bring other people's stories to life. And it's an incredibly rewarding process. And yet I also found it to be somehow quite lonely because you step onto a project, you have this really intense experience, and then you step away from it, but the project goes on for a really long time. It goes into post-production. And, you know, I really missed that because you have this really close connection with the people that you work with so intensely. And then it's like every time your family kind of disintegrates again. And, And I really craved to be a part of that process for longer and to work with loads of other creative people that intensely for a longer amount of time. But then also, I suppose, politically, this was way before all of Me Too and everything that that was happening, and I definitely felt an unease and, yeah, just just that lingering sense of what it means to have to sort of fight your way through in an industry like that. And the only way really to combat that is to step into a more active and into a more executive role. And Jill Soloway at the time, I don't know if you're familiar with Transparent, that um, Amazon show, it had just come out and she gave a fantastic masterclass at the TIFF Film Festival. And it really galvanized for me this idea that if we want to change something in our stories and in the way we tell our stories, we have to actually actively start taking a part in that. So that was sort of like the final straw to go, you know what, you've got to do this. And it was never a sense of giving up acting. I feel I am an actor, have always been, will always be, but it was just an expansion of that kind of creative expression. So for me, hopefully it will always be a rounded kind of journey and I'll always end up doing a bit of everything. Right now my focus is very much on the making side. Who would be your filmmaker influences? Some filmmakers inspire me for what they stand for and what they do and others inspire me for the kind of stories that they tell, others for the way they tell it. So I think on any particular day, you know, it shifts and changes, whatever that is, you know, from Ava DuVernay to James Cameron. I remember when I applied for film school, you know, they asked me that same question and I had to give such a sort of a diverse answer because it's for different reasons. James Cameron, you know, this idea that he had to create 
the software to make the films that he was trying to make. He had to deep dive down to the Titanic wreck. You know, it's such a crazy thought, but it's it's the way he invests his whole life into his art. And then you have other incredible filmmakers who are so brave and step out there and really tell the stories that need to be told. Congratulations on your new uh, on on your on on your on your first film, Sweet Sweet Tooth, on being accepted in the in the uh, in the in the Saint Kilda Film Festival that starts on Friday the twelfth of June. What are you most excited about having your film being shown at the Saint Kilda Film Festival? Well, obviously, it's an amazing experience to have your film screened at any festival. The fact that it got made and the fact that it responded, that it resonated with an audience. So it's an amazing honour to be screening there, particularly also, again, on home ground, as it were. It is, it, it's, a, it's a European story, but it's so Australian in the fact that, you know, it showcases so much of the Australian landscape. But perhaps for me the most gratifying part about being able to screen the film is the acknowledgement that it gives everybody who worked on it as well. I think it can never be underestimated how much goodwill and generosity it takes from absolutely everybody to make a short film. I mean, you you know, have to beg, steal, beg again for favours left, right and centre in order to get it made. And everybody who has supported this from beginning to end, I owe them so much just because they came on board with their trust and gave this idea wings really with their contribution so to have that acknowledged is just a wonderful wonderful feeling for this year the festival is is purely online i know i think in the background south by southwest where amazon offered to filmmakers to show their films online but it's really up to them and some of the filmmakers didn't want to have it online purely because of the exclusivity of it in terms of as soon as the film's online then it's you know it's basically out to the world did you have any apprehension about that at all or were you happy for the film to be shown online as part of the festival oh i'm very happy to have it shown online i think that feeling is really natural for filmmakers as well because again so much goes into making that film and you only get those first kind of screenings once and once it's out there it's out there I think it's different again for short films obviously in features because for short films often it's a calling card or it's a proof of concept for something bigger so to get it to an audience and to see what that response is is kind of key but I also feel like we're in an unprecedented situation it's not as if the festival has just gone online for no particular reason I mean it is an unprecedented situation so I found it incredibly heartwarming when the lockdown started how it was especially the arts communities that just stood up and started offering all these amazing free content online, all these amazing masterclasses, and artists were really sharing and wanting to uplift each other. So in light of that, I actually feel really happy to be playing a small part of making someone's lockdown a little bit better. So I feel really excited and happy that the festivals have adjusted, have pivoted so quickly, have been able to sort out sort of the tech requirements in the background to safely make that happen. I just feel really, really happy and really humbled to be a part of that, actually. Are you able to talk about um, how the idea of Sweet Tooth came to you? Originally, the idea 
Honestly, for this film came about because at our film school at AFTRS, we have an amazing array of facilities and I really wanted to use the studio space. And that's something that as a filmmaker, I'll likely wait a number of years until I have access to something like that again. So I wanted to create an amazing set. And my idea that just God knows where it came from, probably from my memories of childhood in a place like Switzerland, was what the life-size kind of Tim Burton-esque, kind of spooky but amazing version of a real gingerbread house would look like, a proper big one. And I thought that would be an amazing set to build and what an opportunity. And then the story kind of unraveled from there because I absolutely love fairy tales, but I think like most people, and especially most women, you understand what your role is in those classical, especially Grimm's fairy tales. You know, they they are just a little time capsule of 1812 when they were written and, and published, I should say, collected and published around then. So a lot of the ideas are incredibly outdated. So a combination of this great visually striking set idea and how I could tell a different story based on something we all love and cherish. That was sort of the place where it all began. And amazingly, I didn't feel very confident about it at the start, but when I spoke to people about it, that image and that idea together created a kind of synergy that got people on board. And so my confidence grew with it that there was something in that that people found interesting. As you were saying in the um, on the website, and I also believe in your and di- your director's statement as well about takes inspiration from Maleficent, very much showing the other perspective of a. I'm very very hesitant to use the word evil because I understand that all characters in films they don't necessarily see themselves as evil people because they believe what they're doing is for what they believe are the right reasons. How was that for you? Did you actually enjoy switching like numerous tropes on their heads? It was a funny experiment, really. It was a bit of a tightrope walk because, as I said, I love traditional film. I love traditional fairy tale. I love the feel that you get from a story that is well told, that is succinct and rounded and just plays out perfectly. But within that, the ideas, there's some questions around that. So for me, it was a real balance between how can I make this feel like a film that we know, the kind of, you know, sweeping epic that we have come to love, but filter in those ideas that are switching those tropes around. So looking at something like Maleficent, I mean, obviously I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants always with everything that we're doing, you know, Wicked, the musical, like it's not a new concept to kind of flip that on its head and to go, I'm going to show you a different sort of story and a different side to this evil character's journey. And we all have multiple reasons for how we turn out and it's not our fault most of the time. So it was a real experiment with how far can I push it? And I think with Sweet Tooth, what's perhaps a little bit different to say Maleficent or Wicked is that it's not a story of jilted love. It's not a romance gone bad. It has a different element to it. It's really just a much simpler journey that this character goes on. So I had a lot of freedom in that because I feel like I haven't seen that story told many times. As soon as romance is involved, we sort of know what to expect and there's more expectations around that in terms of how the story has to play out. So I really enjoyed that kind of freedom to just go, I can do something completely different here. And I sort of really seized that in the short film and lent into the 
magic of it and the weirdness of it and the abstraction of it. And it's almost like a dream world. And currently I'm working on a bigger and, and you know, better version of this where those kind of liberties fall away because you do have to tell a consistent story in order for it to have that same effect as a traditional fairy tale does and to reach a really broad audience too. We have so many landmarks that we aren't even aware of as viewers that need to be hit by a film in order for us to feel satisfied by that. So that's all changing now that I'm working on the new version. But in the short, it was really just a fantastic adventure of, as you say, taking the tropes and flipping them on their head and going, what if I do this completely differently and does it still play out? And yet we're going to have production design and snow and costumes and sweeping orchestral scores to make it feel like a world that we just want to dive into. As you were saying, like writing like the script, as you say, must have been one one hell of a tightrope, you know, to very much balance all of those elements together. Was there one specific moment in the script writing that was your like eureka moment that you felt like right I've now actually got it I'm, I'm now very much kind of on my way it w- it could be a character moment or it could be a piece of scenery or an action or was there like a particular moment a big challenge was how much do people know of the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale how much can I expect that people know of these two children that are lost in the woods that leave a trail of breadcrumbs and eventually reach this marvellous house of sugar and spice until they you know, manage to shove the wicked witch in the oven and escape back home to their parents? How much of that can I expect people to know and how much do I need to feed in to the film? So that was a real, a real tricky balance to find and all the feedback was around how do the two stories perfectly interconnect? Because if you're going to reverse a story, if you're going to tell another side, you can't deny the original story. It's all got to fit in. And that's what stories like Wicked or Maleficent do beautifully. They don't change anything about the original. So I think once I accepted that and realised that I would set the story of Hansel and Gretel up as best I could so as to not presume anything, that would give an audience the confidence to then just relax into it and to go on this journey and to go, okay, this is the story you know. I'm going to take you back many, many moons before this and we're going to lead all the way back up to this point and that might change your perspective on what you're currently seeing. But i got to say a lot of that also happened in post-production. So, you know, they say you make a film three times, you write it three times. First you write the script, then you shoot it and then you edit it and every time the, the story changes, that was really the case with this film. And I had a wonderful editor come on board who really helped me rejig the story pieces and to get that straight and all along the way having great mentors feeding in and having really honest audience conversations was a big process of it so I think yes I wrote a script that gave me all the elements but not until the final film was put together did actually everything click which is terrifying yeah a lot of filmmakers can you know vouch for that that it is basically just a free fall until you finally hit the ground and either it's a soft landing or it's a disaster. You just don't know until until you get there. So that was a little bit the case with this, which also gives you confidence because you go, you write a script and it's the best you can do in that moment, but you can never possibly fathom what actors, designers, you know, all the people that you work with are going to bring to a story once they put their creativity into it. And then the same in post-production. I mean, we had the most 
incredible composer on this, the most incredible people who helped with visual effects in a way that no student film should ever be helped. Like they were so extraordinarily generous, which, you know, it was probably on my part just absolute dogged stubbornness as well as asking nicely, but they came on board. It takes a village to make the film. So I don't think I can claim the eureka moment in the script writing process. I think lots of mini eurekas happened along the way. Sweet Tooth is a film that is made by women. I believe it's 68% of crew, cast, executive level are uh, are women. How important was it for you to make sure you had a predominantly female-led crew in this project? Working with female crews is important because we are underrepresented and not just equally capable, but the capability is not even a factor. It just is. Everybody knows how to roll a cable. It's about the way we interact with the gear. People are more important than equipment. And I think that's something that traditionally is quite easily being forgotten. It's all about the lenses and the cameras and yada, yada, yada. But actually, it's the people who operate them that really make the difference. That's not to say at all that, you know, male crews don't do that, but it was just such a marked shift that all those familiar ways of doing things because it's always been one way because you know the first ad always sounds like this and the dop always sounds like this that that's how we have to do it and it's just not the case you can rethink these processes you can rethink how you want to start the set you can rethink how you want to run a rehearsal and you can rethink how you want to set an atmosphere for that particular shooting day. It's all up for grabs. And that was perhaps the most inspiring thing is that not that it was particularly female, it was just different. That's just talking about the sort of crew aspect of it. I think as a a creative and then about the female-led stories, that is also obviously equally important and something I'm I'm passionate about. But, you know, I'm, I'm really conscious of what's happening in the world at the moment and the fact that, me as a able-bodied white female filmmaker, I'm sitting right up there on the privileged pyramid. So I don't consider my work and my storytelling to be some kind of massively groundbreaking shift. I think it's just the tip of the iceberg of a process that needs to happen that cracks open not just the film industry but every aspect of life. This idea that feminism exists in a vacuum to me is just completely yeah it it just negates itself feminism is intersectional and otherwise it's not feminism so I feel very grateful to have been a part of this first kind of wave post me Too, you know stepping into that space with more access more opportunity more funding more acknowledgement more diversity hires but I'm just part of the tip, 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 tip of the iceberg. There is such a long way to go. And that's my responsibility to look around and be really conscious of that. And and obviously with that, would that obviously be something you would take with you into, into all of your future projects? Yeah. And I mean, the conversations that I'm having, it seems like there's this really obvious go-to way of framing it, and that is that, you know, we have to do this in order to be politically correct and to tick these boxes and to make sure that our production is, you know, moving in the right direction. 
That's sort of one way of looking at it. And I believe in all of that because it makes it the rule that it has to happen because we all know it's, if the rule can be sidestepped, the rule will be sidestepped. That's why we're in, in the situation that we're in. But I'm also really passionate about just remembering that the more diverse, for want of a better word, the more black people and people of colour are included in the creative environment that we're all working in, the more money these projects make. It's this strange idea that it's some kind of a concession to bring women and people of colour into the mix, but actually it is an economic incentive to do that. We speak to a huge chunk of all audiences and the more diverse, contrasting and nuanced the perspectives in the room are, say it be that a writer's room or an editing suite or a production meeting, the better the project is going to be. The more universally human it's going to be, the more subtle it's going to be, the more accessible it's going to be. So I really feel, I mean, I'm far from, you know, the person to be first saying this. This is something I've learned over years. And it was Kate Blanchett in her Oscar speech. That was a eureka moment for me where she said, you know, this idea that women's films are niche films, that we have to call them women's films, that we have to call them strong female characters, is just ridiculous because they make money and loads of it. So if nothing else, let's get on board for that reason, especially now with the situation that our industry is in post-COVID. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fitsquare.com. Take care and we'll see you next Wednesday.